Welcome listeners to this episode of Shooting from the Hip. I'm Jeff Pedro in with Mark Avery, and we're from Sim Trainer, the Dayton area's leader in firearms training. If you want to learn how to shoot for the first time, you could get enrolled in our award-winning First Shots program. If you're looking to get your concealed handgun license, you can take our eight-hour concealed carry class. Or if you want to take advanced training in firearms, whether it's handgun or uh, M4 rifle or take personal lessons with a shotgun, we have all of that available to you. If you would like to find out more about the classes that we offer, please check out our website at sim-trainer.com. Under the classes tab, we have all our classes with descriptions, and many of them have actually little, actually little video vignettes so that you can see what we actually do in the classes. In addition, you can stop by the range, which is located at 2031 Dryden Road in Moraine, right across from DPNL, or you can give us a call at 293-3914, and we'd be more than glad to discuss with you any of your firearms-related needs or interests, whether it's training, gun selection, whatever it is about guns and accessories, we'll be glad to help you out in any way we can. Each of the several weeks that we'll be doing these podcasts, I mentioned that we're going to highlight certain topics. And this week, I couldn't help to uh, decide to go with something that Mark had sent me. Um, one of the anti-gun organizations, any town for uh, to prevent guns, whatever they're called. Yeah, every a, town for gun safety. Every town for gun safety. I knew it had something yeah. like that. It's, that's not really what they're interested in, but it's uh, a bunch of people who they want to grab your guns and they want to do crazy things. But um Congress right now is uh, milling around a bill that we'll talk about later on uh, that they've, uh, they call the SHARE Act. And the SHARE Act, S-H-A-R-E, stands for Sportsman's Heritage and Recreational Enhancement Act. And um, in that particular article that Mark sent, for, sent over to me from that organization, they made mention of the fact that the Hearing Protection um, Act is, is within this particular larger piece of legislation and that uh, they made a claim that it was going to make it so that criminals could get silencers and therefore shoot their guns without going unnoticed when they per, uh, perpetrated their crimes um, and that they were going to be able to get these uh, silencers without undergoing a background check. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. All of the issues were not only inaccurate, they were just outright wrong. Well, blatant lies. I mean, they know they're wrong. They're saying these things because it makes their point, and the only way they can make their point is to lie about it. The provision of the, the Hearing Protection Act, which there's also independent legislation to uh, make uh, suppressors no longer have to re be required to go through a, a lengthy process where you have to fill out a uh, a form, submit a $200 fee, uh, and then wait six to nine months in order to get approval before you're eligible to get it. There's independent legislation still in place to to uh, move that forward, but the, this current piece of legislation that has gotten recent attention, the SHARE Act, has a provision in there that will authorize um, individuals to own suppressors just as if they would own any other firearm. And the requirement's going to be they simply have to do a background check in order to get it. Now, Mark and I were talking right before the show. We don't even think it's it's applicable that the, or appropriate that we make an individual go through a background check to get a suppressor. Now, picture this. It's like, an individual, it's like requiring a background check to get a grip for your gun. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's you can't an accessory. fire it without the rest of the gun. Right. It's, it's totally useful. ridiculous, but I will tell you, it's a step in the right direction if that's what it takes. Those of us who know what suppressors do, what they don't do, and the benefits of having suppressors, we won't mind going through that extra step because now we can get them with relative ease. 
Now, in it's addition, a, it's a lot less complicated extra step than the ones you have to go through now. At least, absolutely. So, you know, when you're talking about a two hundred dollar fee and wait six to nine months just to get one, that will be a welcome addition. Plus, there's provisions in that legislation that anybody that purchased a suppressor, I believe, after October or November of 2015 and paid the two hundred dollars, they will get that refunded, which I think is reasonable because they paid that money unnecessarily. There's no way they can tell me that that takes. Uh, that $200 fee is is going to be utilized to go through a background check that takes a little bit of time. Well, in fact, they probably, I mean, that's not a, a background check fee anyway. That is the, the tax stamp because it's part of the National Firearms Act, and it was originally created as a tax because the Congress at the time, back in 1934, recognized that you could not prohibit people from purchasing particular types of firearms because of the Second Amendment. So that was specifically about automatic weapons as the primary focus, and then several other things have been thrown in there since, including the so-called silencers that they love to just tout as uh, the way Hollywood represents them as making a gun completely silent, which anybody who's fired one recognizes just to better wear hearing protection. Well, absolutely right. And, and I mean, you think back to many of us remember the James Bond days, and that's the mo- probably the most, in my lifetime, yeah, just that little... Uh, fizzing sound that the the gun would make when the gun was fired. That's not the case. I have been, uh, being in law enforcement, we had uh, access to many firearms that were in fact suppressed. And uh, you do not have to wear a hearing protection, but it's obvious the gun is being fired. And the nice thing about it is that you don't have to wear hearing protection. And um, that way, in some cases, it's going to minimize the amount of potential hearing loss for individuals. Now, here's what I know. Even though there were many of us that shot those, almost all of us and everybody around still wore hearing protection. So yeah, it's not it's not anywhere near the sound pressure levels, but it only reduces it by less than your hearing protection does. So they typically reduce it 10, uh, 15 to 30 to 25, rather, 15 to 25 decibels, depending on the suppressor, depending on the caliber. Um, and that reduction is not inconsistent with hearing protection. Some earplugs are as low as 15 dB protection. Uh, They go up to about 30 dB protection, and that's about it. So having the two of them together really does help a lot. You'll still hear it, even with your hearing protection, but it's nowhere near as oppressive and certainly nowhere near as dangerous to the hearing. And as someone who's lost hearing, as a result of an unprotected fire shot, you would certainly understand that. I understand that totally from personal experience, due to my own negligence. Um, and another thing I wanted to mention: focus. It was yes. your own focus. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I wanted to mention about that: when you talk, when you listen to those points, uh, that organization, as we mentioned so many times, they are just relying on the emotional response they get from the few people who really give a darn about what they say. Because I got to believe that anybody that even bothers to look anything up knows that most everything they say has little to no truth attached to it. Well, clearly they've never been people who have actually fired a suppressed firearm. If they had, they would know that most of what they're saying here is completely not true. Yeah, but the other side of that, regardless if they've experienced doing that, to make a claim which is totally addressed in the legislation, every commentary about it, that it's they can get it without getting a background check, and it's just going to be given to them, and they're going to be able to use it in their criminal deeds. It was an outright lie. Well, it's an outright lie, and particularly because what they've decided to do is to take this accessory and treat it as if it were actually a firearm. So then you have to go through the exact same background check that you would go through if you were to purchase a firearm. Now, 
There are some people who don't need to go through an additional background check to get a firearm. Anybody that's uh, had a license recently, a concealed handgun license recently issued in Ohio, can just show that license, and that's all the background check they need. But there was a background check associated with that, and because the sheriff continues to track whether or not you've had any disqualifying offense, if you still have the license, then you haven't had that disqualifying offense. And those individuals will have to revalidate every five years because the license is good for five years when you apply. They go back through and, and uh, submit your information again. Rerun and, the check. Rerun the check so that if there's anything in the meantime that got added on there, which you know brings me to another point, and, and Mark and I have mentioned this so many times, good guys don't do bad things most of the time. The people that have concealed handgun licenses, they know the limitations, they know the law, and they're not going to get themselves in a position where their concealed handgun license is going to be revoked. Now, when you look at the 650 to 750,000 people in the last 14 years in Ohio that have gotten uh, concealed handgun licenses, certainly there have been instances where individuals have committed criminal acts or engaged in other behavior that resulted in their license either getting temporarily revoked and or, and or permanently revoked or suspended. So or temporarily suspended or permanently revoked. Um, but when you look at the total number, it's not very, very many. And those that did, if they committed criminal acts that were in violation of the law, we are a, a country of laws, a nation of laws, and we believe that if you commit um, criminal acts that result in those privileges being taken away from you, then, then so be it. It's your own fault. You did it. It's based on your own action. But what they're trying to do is say, well, we're going to make it difficult for everyone because that makes the world safer. And, of course, there's no evidence whatever that they ever present that backs that up, and the statistics show exactly the opposite. Yeah. And, you know, that, that act way back in 34, was it, that, you know, now we're looking the at National uh, Firearms Act. Yes, 87 years ago, um, according to my quick math. Um, there are a lot of provisions of that that in recent years, over the last 20, 30, sneaky pieces of legislation have gotten snuck into that under the auspices that it's somehow going to result in um, uh, less gun crime. Um, I remember when the Brady uh, provision went into effect in the 80s. It had similar effect. It was an emotional response to a large degree to a, a very tragic incident or a couple of incidents. And um, uh, it hasn't had a lot of impact on violent crime. Current day issues. If you just take the current um, focus on the news about shootings of and by the police over the last uh, several years, and you look at what's going on in urban America, and we keep mentioning, and I just heard a commentator mention today, instead of all this nonsense about sense about police uh, use of excessive force, how about people, whether they're athletes, actors, uh, public officials, getting together in Chicago, just Chicago, nobody else, nowhere else, just get together in Chicago and say, let's take a look at this problem here where last year 700 African Americans lost their lives, mostly at the hand of other African Americans, and let's look at the dynamics of that situation. Instead, we continue to just talk about issues that many people don't know anything about. They certainly don't bother to check the statistical data, which is available. Statistical data of shootings of and by the police is available through the um, uniform crime reports, the FBI uniform crime reports, which are always about a year behind, but current data is readily available and you can compare year to year. They, matter of fact, just did that. They showed some statistics where shootings of the police uh, or by the police have actually gone down in the last year reporting from 15 to 16. 16 is the last full year that they have data 
uh, available. Um, that's going to be soon. That entire year's report will be released, released here very soon. But when they analyze the data that is available, they've seen a trend downward. And when you look at the proportional representation of certain groups, you see that it's not a growing problem. Um, there's, there's issues that we certainly need to talk about. But again, people don't like to look at hard data. They don't like, like to look at real, fat, real facts. They just like to use emotion. When they know that their data is lacking or non-existent, they like to use emotional responses to try to provoke some kind of interest and maybe get a cause moving. And when they have a particular agenda and the data doesn't support their agenda, that's all the more reason to not want to look at it because if you do, you can see that what they're telling you is not fact and, and people who have an argument to make don't like to be outed like that. We in the gun community, we're kind of in a good position right now. Um, uh, the, the president has made very clear he has either already done so or is in the process of rolling back some administrative um, uh, restrictions, uh, some even related to the firearms industry. I saw that uh, the Operation Choke Point was choked out just last week. He put an end to it, and uh, that was a terrible a terrible incident that resulted in the loss of a life of a border patrolman and the critical injury of another um, by guns that were uh, um, not tracked properly in that particular operation. Fast and Furious. Fast and Furious, I'm sorry, yeah. The Fast and Furious program, I, I misspoke there. But yeah, that was, point a, was related to that. It was it was kind of a, a response to say, let's make it more difficult for people who are legitimately in the business with firearms, make it more difficult for them to do any banking. And it was kind of an, an aftermath of the expose of the government having run the Fast and Furious program. So yeah. it's easy to understand why those would get confused. But Fast and Furious was a completely uh, separate issue, and it was unbelievably horrible that they tried to keep under the rug and not let people know what was going on and have demeaned the families of those men who were killed as a result of having released those firearms. Absolutely. And there's just so many things right now that I just have to be proud of that um, we are in a good, good place. Uh, Stuff is readily available, ammunition, guns, pretty much anything you want, uh, accessories, but we have to be cautious. And Mark and I know that it's times like this when sometimes we put our guard down because we're not paying attention. That's why organizations like the NRA, the United States Concealed Carry Association, the Buckeye Farms Association, and similar groups they're constantly being um, vigilant and overseeing what's going on because sometimes we get a little bit, um, we just not paying complacent. close attention, a little bit complacent, and things can sneak in under the radar. And that is really what happened up until the passage of 2000, in 2004, the concealed handgun license in Ohio for about 15 or 20 years. We just kind of, we thought the Second Amendment meant what it said. And yet people behind the scenes were kind of chipping away, chipping away and trying to delve deeper and deeper into getting, you know, further restrictions and imposing further restrictions on that. And it, it, uh, almost, it almost came back to haunt us. Well, I'd go back even a little further than that. When the Clinton gun ban passed in 2004, I mean, uh, yeah, it, the uh, 1994 was the time when it really, uh, I think a lot of people really woke up and, in the 10 years that followed that up through the ending of 2004, uh, there was at least one attempt to repeal that in 2005, I mean in 1995, and it failed. But what we did repeal was a whole lot of uh, representatives in Congress and Congress and senators who voted for it, and they were kicked out, not exclusively due to that. There was a lot of other things that were going on at the time, but that was a major factor. And in fact, even Bill Clinton 
attributed much of the, uh, the the turnover in the House and Senate to the mistake, really, although I doubt that they would admit it was a mistake, but the mistake of that funny-looking gun ban, which is really all it amounted to. It was all cosmetic. There was nothing functional about anything that they banned. Absolutely. And, Mark, that kind of leads us right into this next point. When I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about the SHARE Act. Um, the SHARE Act, again, has several provisions in it that would be pro-gun and pro-recreational sports uh, uh, geared, geared in that direction. Some of the things, for example, it would assist in um, no longer would legislation or laws be able to be enacted to prohibit um, lead fishing anchors and lead shot being used in certain shooting sports at certain locations, which is something that's been a tremendous impediment uh, over the years. It would also open up hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres of federal land for purposes of sporting for sporting purposes. The whole lead ammunition thing has been uh, picked up as a uh, it's one of those pet rocks of the gun control community, anti-hunting community, really, to say we're going to make it more difficult for people to we're and doing it in the name of the ecology and not poisoning and and several other things. But they, of course, don't bring data. They just say, well, it's lead. Lead is dangerous. Therefore, we're going to get lead out of the system. And they what they don't realize is that some of the substitutes are more toxic than the lead. But you know that, but they're also a lot more expensive. So they're okay with more expensive because that makes it more difficult to people use them. Well, Mark, and and just something that many of the the people who've done a lot of research into to say, where does the lead come from in the first place? I mean, from where it comes sh- is where it shall return, and it will. Cycle. They take it out of batteries, don't they? Uh, don't yeah, they get yeah, it all from car batteries. That must that be exactly from? where it comes from. Comes from the earth, and it returns to the earth. It cycles through, and there's no question there are issues. Um, Michigan is going through the tail end of some terrible governmental um, oversight relative to their water supplies. Failures. Failures, and they knew about it. So naturally, the lead became the issue when, in fact, the real issue should have been the failures, the negligence, and the criminal actions of the government leaders who let things happen in the name of saving money and um, not wanting to be politically incorrect or whatever the reasoning was. And I'm sure it's going to come out because... That is just building. I, I think we've only seen kind of the, the beginning of what that's going to evolve to up, up there. But those things certainly have happened. But across the nation, when you look at the, 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 the locations where lead shot and fishing anchors have been used, that's not a widespread problem. These are isolated problems that need to be dealt with on an isolated basis. But um, relative to this act, there are numerous provisions in this act. And I noticed that uh, it's path, passed through several, several committees and several congressmen are now saying, hey, let's move this forward. Let's put it to a vote. And it's long overdue because the advantage to putting it to the vote is, as Mark mentioned, back in the 90s, people understood that their political c- careers were potentially linked to their decisions that they made relative to gun legislation. This is not just gun legislation. Matter of fact, that's only a small part of it, but it has a, it's going to have a big impact on probably the 2018 and 2020, 2022 elections by the way people vote. And if they call this to vote, you got states like, you know, the, the, the Western states, the North central states, places where hunting and fishing is widespread, you've got people on both sides of the fence who are going to have to make a decision. And it, it, there's only really one decision to make here, and it's to be in favor of the passage of this wonderful act that has been carefully crafted, and it's got the interest of sportsmen around the country in mind. One thing that I think is different about this act from 1994 is that 
1994 went into effect in September, right before the election in November. So if this goes through and follows the normal procedure and is actually voted on this year or early next year, and then there's six to eight months before the election, my guess is no matter what the outcome would be, it would have a lot less impact. I think that people like us will try to keep it in the forefront and let people know about it if it goes the wrong way. Uh, but it, but even if it does go the wrong way, it's n- probably not as likely to have as big an impact as the Clinton gun ban did unless it gets delayed and it does end up very close to the election. Well, I'm a big proponent of forcing their hand on this because I think people need to be called out and see where they stand instead of just saying, well, if, if that was brought before me, I would probably go this way, and then in the back of their mind, they're saying, please don't bring that before me because I don't want to be in that position. It's just recently happened in some other legislation, but um, I think this is a critical issue. And and again, I don't want you to be a single-issue voter, but when we look across the board, these people need to be held accountable for the things they do and the things they don't do. But the SHARE Act has a lot of good positive things in it, um, and it's important that people understand. Relative to the comments that are being made by the other side, one other thing I wanted to mention here that the – every town to prevent gun violence mentioned was that it's going to make gun manufacturers and accessory of accessories, uh, gun manufacturers and accessories rich. It's going to be a, a huge windfall for them. Well, you know what? They're a business that runs a legitimate business with a legitimate product and they deserve to have maybe a boost in their sales after years and years and years of restrictions on the product that they make that has no negative impact in any way, shape, or form. In the case of the suppressors, they deserve whatever windfall they get. And you know, I will tell you right now, I'd be the first to tell you, I'm going to buy one or two or however many if the law passes um, because I'm very excited about because I know the, the benefits of having them, and they deserve whatever uh, increases in revenue they have if, in fact, this passes. So, yes, they will make money, but it's not like it's diabolical and it's, it's, it's Ill, ill-advised. Well, I think actually they'll probably make less money than they would if the didn't go into effect. And the reason for that is because there's going to be a lot more demand. There's going to be a lot more people manufacturing because there will be fewer controls. It won't be as hard to go through the manufacturing process. And so I think that will be good for everybody. There'll be more people that can manufacture them and, and we'll have more innovation. We'll have better products that come out and we'll have a lot more of those suppressors available for a lot more different types of guns and we'll be able to retrofit guns with them even guns that weren't originally designed to work with them they will find ways to do that so that people who want to have a suppressed firearm for all of the safety advantages and the the sound you know the the anti-rudeness advantages that go along with it I think there will be a lot more of them available, and that's good all the way around. I'll let our listeners know. I'm going to try to get a couple of people involved in the sales, and I would like to get some people that have been instrumental in the moving forward of the Hearing Protection Act um, in this country to uh, be a part of this show in the future uh, because it's something that I think we need to educate the listeners about because there are people who maybe this is the first time you heard anything about a suppressor versus the negative things about uh, associated with a silencer that the, the anti-gunners are putting out there and know that in the truest form, if you look up um, um, gun suppressors online, uh, you're going to find something totally different than if you put, you look up silencers in their their, their evil impact on the environment or just silencers versus suppressor. The, as Mark mentioned earlier, they do not silence the gun. They just lower the actual 
amount of noise that the gun gives off so that it's less potentially harmful to an individual that might be nearby. Another term that is sometimes used to describe them is mufflers, and that's in fact the term that is typically used in Europe when they're talking about it. And in fact, it's it is considered to be a gross breach of etiquette for you to hunt without a suppressed firearm. You you know if you're out hunting, if you're out uh, hunting for birds or whatever the you know, very controlled hunting that is available, and you don't have a suppressed firearm, that that's looked on as as pretty rude. That you're just not being a very good citizen. And it's easy to see where that phraseology came from, Mark, because if you are familiar with motorcycles and you've seen the things that they put on the back of uh, the exhausts on motorcycles and you see an actual suppressor, in general, some of the general design features, the outside casing and then baffles in some configuration on the inside, it looks similar. So it's easy to understand why they've gotten the the, the phraseology kind of intermingled. Yeah, sure. Basically, we're all talking about the same things and they're just different names for them. So what is it that's different that Hollywood does? Well, they have sound editors that create the sounds that you hear, so it doesn't sound anything like the, the like the the final production of the movie for from the firing of a suppressed firearm, uh, a silenced firearm. But they are exactly the same thing. We're not talking about anything different. Whether you're talking about silencers, suppressors, or mufflers for a firearm, it's the same device. So it, it really, it's, it's a question of naming, and of course the anti-gun crowd wants to use the term silencer because they can make that as sound like something evil and that you're really going to be in super stealth mode and nobody's going to ever be able to find you or the, uh, the listening devices that they use to try to locate guns uh, where gunfire is, aren't going to work. In fact, it does work, and those things also trigger on other kinds of noises, and they have the software that helps to filter out the the distraction noises and focus only on the gunshots. But the gunshots still sound like gunshots whether they're suppressed or not. They just, you know, it's not that big a deal. So Right. I want to remind our listeners that if you have a question or comment relative to anything we're discussing here in the show, either currently or in the pa- or in shows of the past, or if you just have a general question you'd like to have answered, please go out to our website and click on the contact uh, link and go ahead and fill in the information and send us the question. Now, we will either reply to you individually, or if we think it's a question or comment that needs to be shared with the, the larger listening audience, we will certainly uh, bring it up on a succeeding show. Um, we've had numerous questions that have been bought, brought to us over the last few weeks. Most of them, matter of fact, all of them have been kind of individual issues that one individual wanted answered, so uh, we didn't uh, bring it to, to the show. However, we want to let you know that there is a way for us to I- interact, and again, just reach out to the website on the contact link, fill in the contact link, fill in your question or comment and send it to us. And neither Mark or I will get back with you with a response in a relatively short period of time. You can also find us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash simtrainer. And there's a link to that on our website at sim-trainer.com as well. So if you have any of those kind of questions, or if you have something that you want to share with the audience in general, that's another way you can do that. I want to shift gears just a little bit and mention that uh, Uh, Representative Steve Scalise returned to uh, Congress yesterday and uh, to roaring applause and uh, the satisfaction of his colleagues after that tragic incident back in June where he and uh, his uh, fellow congressmen were uh, out practicing baseball and a uh, armed gunman just opened fire and uh, critically injured uh, him to the point where he was in the hospital clinging to life for several days and uh, injured several other people, and it was the heroic acts of uh, two police officers on the scene who returned fire, neutralized the threat, and uh, as Representative Scalise said yesterday, uh, saved his life and likely saved the lives of many other people who were there that particular day. 
Yeah, that was a, um, a, a triumphant return back to the House. And in fact, there were a lot of people there. It was a bipartisan. It was probably as unanimous as there has been anything in this Congress or any Congress in recent uh, in recent memory where uh, everybody was really glad that he was there and glad that he was back and listened without arguing to the things that he had to say. And uh, it was it was quite a testimony. Uh, the one one of the officers was there, had been invited to participate and to be present for that. Um, the other wasn't able to be there. And I think that the, his protection detail has gotten the appreciation and and the uh, the props that they deserve for the way they acted that day. But I think there's a lot of other things that have come out that that probably don't get as much attention as they should. And, Right after it happened, there were some people who said, well, you know, we should allow congressmen and their staffs to be able to carry. I don't disagree with that, but I disagree with limiting it to Congress and their staff. Well, you know, Mark, the, the next broadcast we had, I said that very thing. I said they came right out within 24 hours. Several of them went in front of microphones and said, you know, I'm thinking about exercising my right to carry, and and we probably need to expand the rights of people in these kinds of positions. And, and I said the same thing. They're no different than you or I. And uh, we should have the same rights and privileges because no matter if I'm going to a baseball practice for my grandkids or he's going to a baseball practice for a fun uh, a fundraising event for uh, uh, legislation in a major league baseball diamond, there's really no difference. We're equally at risk. Um, some would argue that maybe they're more at risk because of their um, their titles and the things Public they profile. do. But I don't know that the statistics play out that way. When you look at the total number of citizens and then the number of people that are shot versus the number of people in Congress who are selected as targets in that situation. Now, in that one day, any one or a variety of probably 30 to 50, I'm guessing, were there on scene. If you take nine baseball players on each side and then some extras. It was, one, and, it was a practice. So yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Okay, so they, yeah, this was a practice. So let's say they had 20 or 25 uh, congressmen there practicing for this uh, fundraising event. Um, besides the point, um, I think the big issue here is that we need to have this discussion nationally. I know it's going on with national reciprocity, which, by the way, is not part of the SHARE Act. That's a separate act, which is also moving forward. I hope that it would gain some momentum. And I made a prediction several weeks ago on our actual last uh, live broadcast that both the National Carry Act and the, the Hearing Protection Act would become reality by the end of the year. I still hold very strong hopes that that's going to occur, but in particular relative to this discussion, um, I think it would be hard, they'd be hard pressed to stand before us, no matter what the venue is, to say we are going to enact uh, legislation or we are going to move forward with provisions that will authorize all members of Congress um, and the House of Representatives to uh, carry guns concealed because I think that would be a tough, a tough thing. I certainly encourage it, like Mark says, but uh, they're leaving us out. Um, we're, we're at uh, just as uh, equivalent danger. And um, when you look at the circumstances surrounding incidents where concealed uh, handgun licensees have intervened, um, not only were concealed handgun licensees, but homeowners or other people, good people with guns have intervened to stop bad people with guns. I think the argument is uh, pretty well set forth. And I think there's strong, strong evidence to make it extend well beyond just those people. Well, and in fact, the Second Amendment, if you actually read what it talks about and what it says is the con that it, it prevents Congress from doing anything to infringe, not just Congress, the entire federal government is prevented from doing anything that 
would infringe the right of the people to keep and bear arms. It doesn't say Congress shall make no law, as the First Amendment does. It says the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, and that not be infringed is by anybody. Now, originally, it applied only to the federal government. With the passage of the 14th Amendment, it applies to all levels of government. And so any level of government that has done something that makes it more difficult for someone to exercise their right to keep and bear arms wherever they happen to be is an infringement. In my interpretation, now I realize that the courts haven't agreed with that, and the laws have been passed, and they haven't been tested in the courts primarily. Most of them have not been. That's right. So the the two times that they the courts have tested and they have been presented with a case about what does this mean, they've agreed with the side of shall not be infringed. Absolutely. So they haven't they haven't tried to. Uh, state any more than the narrow boundaries of the case that was presented to them, which is exactly the role of the government, of the Supreme Court. That's all they're supposed to do. They're not supposed to make blanket rulings on things that aren't presented to the court. But even in the, if you listen to and read all the different commentary about that that was included in those, bottom line is they did not, they were not able to do what they did and they were both kicked back, and I think if we go through that, we would probably end up with a similar result. However, that's not the right way to fix it. The right way to fix it is to have Congress remove those infringements from the law and say, we made a mistake, this goes away, we're not going to infringe the right to keep in The words any mean longer. what they mean. How about that? And, you know, what's really interesting right now, there's a lot of discussion nationally about the First Amendment. No matter where you stand on it, some of the discussion centers around the right of individuals, organizations, and or government to limit certain types of speech, whether it's on the Berkeley campus, on the NFL sidelines, here, there, anywhere. There's lots of people out there, who, and here's what's really scary. Many of them have an opinion that because they don't like it, it should therefore be prohibited. Now, let's move that into the Second Amendment. This has been the same argument for years and years and years. Mark so eloquently, probably hundreds of times on this radio show, have recited those pretty hallowed words right here over the network, and they're pretty straightforward. Shall not be infringed at the end of it means just that, shall not be infringed. And there are a lot of people who don't like guns. And there are people who are very pro-gun, and there are people middle of the road. But too many, too many people don't pay attention to what is the guiding document, and that's the U.S. Constitution. The First Amendment in the case of speech, and the Second Amendment in the case of, uh, of firearms and guns. But and not just firearms; it's any arms. Well, and then they look at the significance, and uh, throughout history, many famous orators have mentioned that without the Second, most of the others would have had little to no teeth to them no meaning to them now some people may be arguing or, or complaining that i left the first part of it off when i talked about it so let me just go back and cover it a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state the right of the people to keep in bear arms shall not be infringed and some argue well that talks about the national guard no there was no national guard when those words were written and the other thing is that that doesn't it only talks to the purpose as to why it's important it doesn't say anything about re, about giving the ability to restrict it when it doesn't apply to that. And that, again, was addressed by the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled with the plain and simple reading of what those words mean. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of people in our society who are more interested in what they can read the Constitution to say 
rather than what they say the Constitution says in its plain and simple language. It is plain. It is simple. It's not like going through and reading the Ohio Revised Code. And anybody who's followed this show realizes that the sections on the concealed carry law, just take that one bit of the code out, 2923, and you talk about that's more than just concealed carry. But if you read that section, it's really easy for your eyes to glaze over. The Constitution, you can read it, and it makes pretty good sense. Now, granted, some of the words don't have the same meanings now that they did then. You have to use the definitions as they were then. What does well-regulated mean? It means it's working well. It's pulled together in such a way that it functions the way it's supposed to. Ask a piano tuner what regulating a piano means. It doesn't have anything to do with government regulations. It has to do with adjusting it and tweaking it so that it works well. Well, that's what we're supposed to be as a society. We're supposed to work well together to defend our land against a threat, whether that be an internal threat or an external threat. If it's a deadly threat to our Constitution, to our Republic, we're supposed to work together in a well-oiled machine in order to be able to stop that threat. That's why we need to be personally armed, according to the Constitution doesn't limit what you can do. It doesn't prohibit self-defense. It doesn't prohibit hunting or any other use of arms, but it does explicitly say this is why we must never infringe the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Well, and I want to just let our listeners know that Mark has educated me on this topic. He's educated me to the extent that he's encouraged me to seek out additional information. I'm going to give a um, an unsolicited plug to an organization Hillsdale College up in Michigan runs a series of courses, one of which is their series on the Constitution that has enlightened me. Now, I went through 12 years of uh, uh, basic education here. I have a four-year degree and 20-some hours of graduate work, and I didn't get even a smattering of the historical relevancy and significance that I got out of reading about a third to half so far of that constitutional series on exactly what the Constitution means, the significance of the Constitution, that the the, the meat of the Constitution is really only significant to the extent that the individuals who follow it and who believe in it are willing to defend it. Now think about that. I mean, there's some there's some loaded language there, and there are people who say, well, what do you mean you're willing to defend it? Well, just exactly what it means. I believe so deeply in the, the, the Constitution and its provisions that I want to defend it. I want it to be the part of the rest of my life, my kid's life, my grandkid's life, and for the, the history of this country because that Constitution is relatively unique on a worldwide basis. And nearly every oath of office, regardless of the level of government, includes supporting and defending the Constitution. In my case, uh, it was uh, as being commissioned as an officer in the Mine Air Force. Mine in the law enforcement. Yours in law enforcement was similar. It also includes other things about the Ohio Constitution that I didn't. You heard the presidential oath. You heard the oath of office for each of the cabinet members. Support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. You know, I just got chills. Now, granted, it's a little chilly in here, but when you think about that, people, I'm telling you, and, and we... Okay, our history books in, in school, I remember in school it was 290, 300 pages long, and I thought, oh, my God, when are, what are we going to do? Well, the Constitution basically was covered in a page and a half, maybe two pages. Yeah, it's not then very maybe, long. Maybe we had a class project or the teacher gave a presentation, or maybe we had to go look at an encyclopedia and plagiarize a one-page uh, article and try to get some breadth and depth of knowledge. But I'm telling you, the series by Hillsdale 
is tremendous. It's easy to read. They have lots of videos that you can click where they lecture to you, give examples, video examples, talk about the historical context. It really adds substantial breadth and depth. And I would encourage you because now's a great time in our country. And what a great time to sit back and educate yourself. You can put the laptop on your, on your lap. You can go to Hillsdale College and it's free. It's free and it's extremely beneficial and extremely, extremely educational. Dr. Larry Arn does a great job with that, with that series. And they have recently reorganized it so that they're in smaller bites. You used to be, it was about a 40 minute, 45 minute lecture all in one piece in video. And they have broken it up so that you can get much smaller segments now. A lot more of them, much more uh, better suited to watching on a phone. So if you have um, an internet access and video streaming on your on your cell phone service or through a local uh, through your you know home Wi-Fi or whatever, you can do that. So you can have it in very personal. You can do it when you've got just a few minutes. You don't have to set out a big block of time. I, I agree. It's an well, excellent program. And, and the it's classic well example out. for somebody like me is I was reading along. It'll have a term that I'm not totally. Um, versed on. For example, when they were talking about the concept of federalism, well, they just provide you with a link. You can stop where you're at, go and read a passage and see a, a brief lecture on federalism and its implication and the significance of, of that concept. So it's just loaded with a lot of information and uh, I want to encourage you to go out and uh, do it for yourself. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. I want to remind our listeners that we have a special event going on next week. On uh, next Wednesday, uh, we're going to have a nationally renowned uh, world champion, national champion, Bob Vogel at the range around noon, around 12 o'clock. He's going to actually uh, perform or shoot our course of fire um, compared to what he's used to shooting at. Uh, it's going to be a little bit interesting and different, but the main thing is the people that are going to be there, those of us uh, people that participate in the league, we're going to get to see world-class shooter at the speed faster than light. I mean, he is just lightning fast, amazing, unbelievable. He came in second place in the world shoot over uh, in, in Europe. Um, just, uh, I think it was last month. But if you just look up online, Bob Vogel, you'll see some great highlights. But he's, he's going to be at the range. And then he's going to be a guest on this podcast for next week. So um, if you have a chance and you're interested, stop by and see him shoot. Or certainly, we're going to focus on competitive shooting, shooting in general, gun selection. I'm going to let him pick the topic because he's got a wealth of information. So uh, that's what we got coming up next week. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you next time on Shooting from the Hip podcast. Thinking about learning to shoot? Considering buying a gun? Want to enjoy the sport of shooting with a friend or family member? How about getting involved in competitive shooting? Sim Trainer offers all these opportunities and more. Visit, call, or stop by. Visit us at sim-trainer.com. Call the range at 293-3914. Or stop by the range at 2031 Dryden Road. Then listen to the podcast by clicking the radio link at sim-trainer.com.